One of the challenges in addressing any social problems of our time is telling the story in a way that is really personal and not abstract. Jeremy Everett of the Texas Hunger Initiative has a way to tell that story and also to invite us to be practically involved in addressing the matter of food insecurity in our community. Stay tuned for Good God. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the program today, Jeremy Everett. He is Baylor University's um, Executive Director for the Collaborative for or of Hunger and Poverty. That's right. That's right. And um, Jeremy, welcome back to Good God. We've Thank had you. Great visit so far and here we go again. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. I, I know everyone else is as well. Uh, in the first episode that we had together, we were talking about your own sense of call to this mm -hmm. work and what animates you and how it's it's been framed. But I think people um, also want to hear more about the Texas Hunger Initiative, sure. about uh, the, the more um, practical aspects of how we go about addressing a massive social problem that has consequences uh, in all sorts of different directions and that really makes people almost despair over the size of the problem and, and how to go about it. So uh, a, a lot of this is about working collaboratively, mm -hmm. it's about trying to get to the heart of these things. Uh, w when you frame that in your own mind and and, and, and think about how to talk to people about it. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned before, proximity research and, and faith tradition are critical in, in understanding and being able to engage these, these issues. Uh, I did a race equity training where I was a participant about uh, uh, six months ago, and, and the trainer said, uh, the temptation after going through this, this uh, two-day training is that you're gonna wanna rush to solutions and first you need to rush to understanding. And uh, uh, she said, you're not ready for solutions yet. So I think wow. first, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's really trying to understand what's going on. And one, one of the things that we found is that, uh, you know, that, that people who experience hunger in the United States primarily experience it uh, in an episodic fashion, meaning it's towards the end of a pay period. Most, of, most people who are food insecure and are of working age are working. And so there's kind of this common misnomer that, that people right. are are not working and that's why they're food insecure. And uh, But the reality is that most people are working, they're just underemployed. And so if you think about our wage rates, you know, so the minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour. And if you uh, are able to put together 40 hours worth of work at seven twenty-five an hour, that's still only $13,000 a year. That's barely enough to cover rent, Amazing. Uh, much less uh, anything else. So I think, mm -hmm. You know, first, it's it's rushing to understanding so that we're not trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Yes. And uh, so you have to, un the only way you can understand is to really have real proximity. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you stood next to somebody in the grocery store line and you saw them use a snap card and all of a sudden you're able to make a snap judgment about all wow. of their family's history mm -hmm. uh, and all people in poverty based upon that one person's purchase right. that particular day in the grocery line. Uh, proximity means really immersing yourself in, in uh, uh, with the people. So uh, John Lewis and the Students for Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the Civil Rights era uh, crafted this term incarnational organizing and, and uh -huh. it's to live and dwell among the people that you're working with. And so I think understanding is critical 
um, first before we can rush to solutions. To the end of understanding, then, you used a phrase that I think people need to understand, and that is food insecurity. Sure, yeah. So when we talk about hunger being yeah. a national crisis, sure. I think for many people, the kind of people, in fact, who listen to or watch a podcast like mm -hmm. this, they have the time and they have the resources and the leisure to be right. able to do so. Right. Right. Uh, probably most immediately they think of starving children in yep. places around the world where there have been massive famines and where there's no access to food at all and there are distended stomachs and there are uh, flies around, you know, people in mm -hmm. the Sudan and the like. And, and it's, it's, it's a, an imagination that they can't transfer to the United States, right. to their communities. Right. Uh, it's a continuum, obviously, but food insecurity yep. starts to get at that, doesn't it? It does, it does. So uh, food insecurity is the technical definition that we use for hunger, basically. Uh, it means that you, you don't have enough access to live an act of uh, food to, you don't have enough access to healthy food to live an active, healthy lifestyle. Okay. And so uh, one of our one of our colleagues was a school social worker when he first came on staff and, or prior to coming on staff with us. And he told us of an experience that he had uh, as a school social worker where he was mentoring a young man uh, who was a junior in high school. And the kid, uh, through his mentorship, began to perform well in school, had fewer discipline problems, all kinds of things were going well and toward, until the end of the school year when he started to flunk his classes and get in trouble again. And, and uh, our colleague said, uh, well, tell me what's going on. Like, you know, you were doing so well. And he said, I realized that if I can at least flunk one class, that I'm guaranteed to go to summer school. And if I go to summer school, I'll at least get one meal a day during oh, the summer. Oh my goodness. And so that's that's food insecurity yeah. in America. That, that's mm -hmm. what many of our children and elderly are experiencing mm -hmm. on a regular basis. And mm -hmm. I just happen to be naive enough to think that we can do better than that. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we think about food insecurity, you mentioned that one of the primary reasons for that is underemployment. Mm -hmm. We live in a time of historically low unemployment. Right. So we're celebrating this fact that yep. there is broad employment, mm -hmm. but now we are moving into a new category and that sure. is underemployment. Sure. Uh, you mentioned that, that if someone worked 40 hours a week at minimum wage, uh, that's not a living wage. Right. Uh, but it's even much higher than that when you when you think about it. I mean, mm -hmm. I think SNAP is 133 percent of uh, of the poverty level, yep. which yeah. is what in about thirty five thousand dollars, thirty six thousand dollars a year. That would work out to be uh, for if, a family of four. Uh, yeah, it, it would be a, a little bit less than that. But yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. So. so so now when we're talking about that, you have to have you have to have two persons in the family. Mm -hmm working minimum wage mm -hmm. and still not reaching the poverty level right. uh, if that were the case. Right. So now you have to have multiple jobs. The, the social consequences of that are just yep. enormous to begin with. That's right. right. So underemployment is a major factor in this country. It is. Most uh, in, the, in the two decades that we lived and worked in low-income communities, most of our neighbors had jobs that they would perform during the week and then they had weekend jobs yes. that they would pick up uh, to be able to try to bring in any kind of extra income. 
Now imagine if you're a child in that household, you know, and, and your your parent has to be away at work all, and, and oftentimes it's at all hours of the day. It's not like they get to pick mm-hmm. their shifts and say, you know, I want to work from nine to five because that way I can pick up my kid. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, they get assigned a shift and they have to go show up and, and, and make it work. And so uh, it, it really it really is problematic uh, for people in poverty. And, and underemployment is something that I think most of us believe that that we want people to be able to access a job that will pay for all of their living expenses. Right. Um, right. I think that's I don't think that's a partisan desire. Right. Um, I think I don't think that that's a desire that's specific to any one religious perspective. Mm-hmm. We want people to be able to uh, have a job that provides for their family, so that their family can have the food that they need, the medication that they mm-hmm. need, mm-hmm. Uh, the housing that they need to be able to get to get by. Um, but the reality is, is that we have some some structural inequities that prohibit that from happening for mm-hmm. many Americans, uh, for right. millions of Americans. It's one thing if that's a problem for you know, uh, one family or two families in a mm-hmm. nation as large as ours. But when it's when it's a problem for upwards 40 million. of... That's right. That's yeah. right. About 18 to 20% of your population. That's just... That's significant. Inconceivable. Well, you and I have been talking uh, about how important it is to change the narrative sure. uh, for people. And when we start talking about narrative, we're talking about stories and real people to a certain extent, so far we're talking abstractly, uh, mm-hmm. conceptually about employment and the like. Uh, I, I think it's important for you to make that uh, story clear. Tell us about Lupe. Uh-huh. Tell us the story of Lupe and her family. Uh, Lupe was our neighbor in the west side of San Antonio. We lived there. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we probably moved to the west side a little more than 15 years ago. and. Uh, uh, the West Side is a very low-income neighborhood. Um, it's gotten a lot of publicity recently because Julian Castro, who was running for president, was from that neighborhood. I worked closely with his mother, uh, who was an organizer there in the community. And, uh, but the neighborhood had 150,000 residents, and the median income was $19,000 per household. And typically, you had three generations sharing a home. Wow! And that was the that was the case for Lupe and her family. Lupe and her husband Luis were. Uh, uh, devout Catholics. They had eight children, um, ranging from high school age all the way down to elementary age. Uh, she was also the primary caregiver to her two wheelchair-bound parents. And so Luis was the only guy on our block that had full-time employment with one employer. And they had one small car, and, and he would take the car and go off uh, to another part of town uh, to work and uh, every day. And, and then she would send her kids off to school and get her parents situated at a senior center. But then she would go volunteer in all of the schools uh, because she knew the ticket out of poverty for her kids and the other kids in the community was to graduate from high school and hopefully go to San Antonio Community College. That was her goal for them. Now, our best high school had a 50% dropout rate. Wow. But their family had a myriad of issues. So their kids would oftentimes come down to our house and play with our kids. And oftentimes during the summer, uh, they may have the water shut off or they may have their power cut off or they may not have any food in the house and so if they played in the hose at our house that might be that was their water access if they uh if my wife brought out a bowl of fruit that might be the only thing that they would 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 potentially eat during the day and it's not because their parents didn't care they cared deeply they just couldn't afford to to pay all their bills well lupe uh got an ear infection like we've all gotten um, only uh, she didn't have health insurance. And so she 
waited until it was too painful to bear, ultimately caught a city bus and went down to one of the emergency rooms in downtown San Antonio, waited all day, wasn't seen, and had to catch the bus to get back home before her kids got out of school. And later that evening, uh, with her family present, her eardrum ruptured, uh, the infection went to her brain, she fell into a coma, and she never woke up. So her eight kids lost their mother prematurely because she couldn't have access to an antibiotic. That, that's that's uh, in a first world country like we're in, it's just mind boggling. Well, the next day after she passed away, her, her husband and her older kids went door to door uh, raising money for memorial service so that they could bury Lupe. And her husband came to my, my house and he sat on my porch and he just buried his head in his hands and said, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And that family was both food insecure, they were underemployed, they didn't have health insurance, and, and oftentimes when we think about 40 million Americans experiencing poverty or 40 million Americans experiencing food insecurity or 30 million Americans who don't have access to health care, we think about them as different segments of society, as if one segment of society is bearing the weight of one particular broken system. Yes, but it's yes. the same family on the local level mm -hmm. bearing the weight of all of our broken systems, and certainly that was the case in Lupe's story. And so when we're talking about changing the narrative, let's just think about the fact that this is an intact family. Right. A multi-generational family. Right. A family with a lot of children, which is to say, uh, they valued carrying pregnancies to term. <laughs> right. Okay. Very this much so. This is a so. pro-life <laughs> family. Very much so, You're right. They valued work. Yep. They valued education. Yep. They valued community. And so, all the kinds of things that are sometimes pointed to to say, you know, if only you would do this, if only you would right. do that, if only right. you had these values, this faith, this yep. all these sorts of things, they had all of those things, and still their family fell into a catastrophic situation right. because of a lack of ability to access things that in a first world country are uh, should be available to everyone. That's right. Right. That's right. So. Part of the challenge then, I think, is to see these things holistically, mm -hmm. right? So you, we're gonna talk about hunger. You said they were food insecure, and we got a good example of that with the children yep. uh, needing uh, you know, fruit and, and mm -hmm. the water and things of that nature. Uh, when we come back from the break, Jeremy, I'd really like to talk a little more about why addressing hunger specifically is one of the ways that has uh, a catalytic effect on everything else. Okay. Okay. Sure. And, and why you focus in that area. Yep. So let's take a break and we'll be back. Yep. Okay. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. These conversations are part of a larger program that is called Faith Commons, the umbrella organization, you might say, of Good God. Good God is the first project of Faith Commons which is a nonprofit organization that is intended to do public theology, you might say. Uh, it's multi-faith, not just Christian, Jewish, Muslim, other faiths, but all of them becoming involved in the question of how do we promote the common good together. There are so many areas of need and concern in our community, and Faith Commons is trying to help bridge the gaps uh, between religions and peoples in our community so that we can have a more just and peaceful society. Thanks for continuing to support us.
We're back with Jeremy Everett, who is the author of I Was Hungry, Cultivating Common Ground to End an American Crisis. Mm -hmm. End an American Crisis. You say in this book that this is something doable. Yes. Being able to eradicate food insecurity in this country is achievable. Yes. And if it is achievable, then the social consequences will become more positive rather than negative mm -hmm. of this. I think a lot of people just begin by saying that's idealistic. Mm -hmm. They would think, well, of course, of course he says that he's working on, <laughs> right. on the Texas hunger initiative. <laughs> right. And he certainly wants to motivate us. And yep. of course he's not gonna lie about that, but you know, the poor you have with you always, yep. and you know, there's always gonna be a reason for us to have people who are hungry. And, but why is it a realistic aim for us? And what are the ripple effects of, of, of that for every other kind of problem? Why start with hunger? Yeah. Well, uh, it is a solvable problem. Uh, we produce enough food for everybody to have access okay. to number one uh, to healthy there food, and so so much of the problem is logistical. Uh, yes. This is worldwide. This isn't yes. just uh, in the United States. In fact, worldwide, we cut global poverty in half uh, from a, from about a billion and a half people about 800 million people in three decades. Yes, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable story that nobody knows about. Hardly. That's right, yeah. it's, it's yeah. remarkable. And, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, it is very, it is very doable. I, I'm inspired by it. So William Wilberforce yes. is uh, uh, a 17th, uh, 1700s, 18th century British parliamentarian who is credited for ending the British slave trade. And oftentimes when we think about that in retrospect, it's like, oh, you know, of course, you know, they ended the slave trade, but, but we don't think about how profound the very concept of ending the British slave trade was right. at that time. Because uh, as one biographer noted that the great, his greatest accomplishment wasn't just ending the British slave trade, but it was ending the very idea that slavery nice. was an acceptable form of commerce. And so because until that day, throughout all human history, that was just a normal way that you did business. That yes. was just a way that you created wealth. And uh, he challenged that notion. And I think the same is true for us. It's, it's a, it's a reimagining. Okay. It's a reimagining to think that in 200 years, maybe somebody will be sitting in a living room having a conversation with their friend saying that, did you know that two centuries ago, wow. there was actually hunger and poverty? Wow. And not being able to fathom it, yeah. just like we can't imagine people using slavery as a way uh, towards economic growth. Like that is, I mean, we know it was there. We know it was very mm -hmm. present in, in American history, but, but that is just hard to get our mind around yes. that people would be so unjust. Mm -hmm. And likewise, I think people can say the same thing about us, about hunger and poverty, to, to make sure that this thing is something that we ultimately solve. But I'm also encouraged, so that's, that's kind of the theological and the philosophical mm -hmm. framework. But very practically, we produce enough food. Yes. So if we produce enough food, uh, then, then that's, a, that's a step in the right direction. We throw away 100 billion pounds of food annually. That in and of itself would be enough to ensure that all 40 million food insecure uh, people in the U.S. Uh, could have access to three meals a day. Just what we throw away. Now you take into account the 4,000 organizations that are addressing hunger in Texas alone. Uh, I think nearly 60,000 organizations are addressing it nationwide. 
you take into effect that we actually have wonderful federal nutrition programs. So the SNAP program gets a lot of it gets a big it gets a bad rap. But the reality is, is that for every dollar that comes into a community through that program, it has a dollar seventy nine worth of economic stimulus for a community. So people who, who who are on the SNAP program immediately take that money and they go and they invest it in the local grocery store. Right. They get food. Right. And uh, the local grocery, grocery chains across the country have said that that program accounts for one in every 10 jobs they have. Wow. So not so only are they- let's just stop and yeah, say SNAP yeah. is the successor language to food stamps. stamps. That's right, Supplemental right, so. Nutrition Assistance Program. Yeah, right, good, right. Yeah. And, and so what, you know, so not only are you addressing hunger through that program, you're also creating economic opportunity for people. So, right. uh, so I mean, we really do have great resources at our disposal. Plus, you've got a great network of food banks nationwide through called Feeding America. Right. You've got Meals on Wheels programs. You've got all kinds of wonderful interventions uh, in schools. You know, our public school system is one of our best right. uh, interventions around food insecurity and poverty. So. So I definitely think it's possible. And uh, okay, and yeah. so you you have talked then about some of the distribution issues. Yes, food banks represent some yep. of that. A yep. tremendous yep. Uh, aspect of yep. that. Yep. Um, schools create uh, a, a table where people can gather, uh, so a, a, an access point where they can get to the food. Yep. Um, we still have. Uh, some tremendous absences of accessibility in food mm -hmm. in certain parts of our communities, those. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we talk about food deserts. Right. And that's probably not exactly right in the sense that almost everybody finds a way to get um, to a convenience store to mm -hmm. buy certain kinds of food, mm -hmm. paying more with more sugar in it, with mm -hmm. l less healthy and those sorts of things. What we're really talking about is uh, access to nutritionally healthy mm -hmm. foods and that sort of thing. How do we get there when, Jeremy, I think, everybody talks about we need more grocery stores and supermarkets and fresh produce at a reasonable price and those sorts of things in communities. But we think the market just naturally takes care of this <laughs> right, and it's not right, working. Right, right. Um, well, I, I, I'm a strong proponent of public and private partnerships. Good. And uh, meaning that uh, there are things that we need the government to do that only it can do. And there are things that we need nonprofit communities and philanthropic communities to do. And there are mm -hmm. things that we need congregations to do right. uh, that only they can do. But, but by building partnerships and getting all these folks collaborating together, mm -hmm. that's where we see us as a nation getting the multiplier effect. And so the things that I have seen that I, I am most encouraged by uh, in terms of intervening on, on behalf of people who live in these low-income food deserts mm -hmm. uh, where they don't have access to healthy food. Um, oftentimes they're surviving on a dollar menu yes. um, at, a, at a local uh, fast food restaurant or to your point, a convenience store that may not mm -hmm. have access to healthy food. And it's often o overpriced and older mm -hmm. um, at convenience stores. So uh, one is uh, an initiatives uh, where you're, you're partnering with existing convenience stores mm. um, and transforming shelf space ah, and providing more good. more healthy options. Good. Uh, and so oftentimes cities are partnering with convenience stores to see that happen. Um, but I'm a believer in uh, in Waco. We, we uh, One of our nonprofits, Mission Waco there, put in a, what they call Jubilee Market. They bought an old convenience store mm -hmm. and transformed it into a small grocery store. Okay. It may never make, uh, it may never, it, uh, achieve profitability in a traditional sense. Right. 
but isn't that what <laughs> investing in the common good is about, right? Right, you right. Know, so, exactly. so if we collectively as a community need to subsidize sure. their losses at 20% a year, right. but we're providing access to, to healthy food and we believe that that is a value, right. then uh, what better way to spend our money? So this is, an this is the, the kind of imagination and innovation that is so needed in the social sector, I right. think. Because here's the story I'll tell you here in Dallas. There's a Costco that went in to North Dallas, and the city council made the decision to give it a $3 million tax abatement right. to incentivize this particular place in North Dallas mm -hmm. uh, for the Costco. My own councilman, Mark Clayton at the time, was involved with other council persons around this concern that we continue to subsidize parts of our city yep. Uh, for businesses and other parts get no attention. Yep. Uh, to their credit, South Dallas, West Dallas has been on the radar of our public mm -hmm. officials and they know that we can only succeed as a city for so long uh, and certainly we are not if we consider the whole city and mm -hmm. that is we need, we need help in these areas uh, that are most underserved. So they tied it to a $3 million equal incentive to put a major grocery store in South Dallas. Wow. And they said, we'll give this, but we're also going to contact all these major grocery store chains and incentivize them uh, with $3 million to put a grocery store in South Dallas. Fabulous idea. Nobody agreed to do it. Yep. Now, the city council voted. It's sitting there waiting for yep. some major grocery yep. store to say yes, but they look at their market analysis and say $3 million is not enough to incentivize us to That's go right. in this, is, in this right. community. But what we're talking about here is, again, government policy can sometimes be ham-fisted, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have the nimbleness of using mm -hmm. its fingers. And what you're talking about is, what if instead of $3 million one time to have a grocery store go mm -hmm. in, what if you break that up 30 times and have a million dollars? hundred thousand yep. dollars to yep. contribute to uh, changing convenience stores that exist all through South Dallas. That's right, that's right. And so, I mean, I, and I think that it's good that the city is exploring these opportunities. I mean, right. I mean, if, if they could get a grocery store to come in for a right. $3 million tax incentive, then that's wonderful. Sure. I, 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 I am grateful that, uh, that the city of Dallas is prioritizing both communities because oftentimes, mm -hmm. If you live in one community, we see you as a little more human yes. than people who live in the other community. And yes. so we just keep, uh, we our, our sidewalks look a lot nicer in wealthier areas than they do in poorer Absolutely. areas. Absolutely. So, mm -hmm. so anything that we can do to try to provide a just infrastructure, I think is important. But also recognizing that grocery stores only have a 1% profit margin. Yes. And so, you know, $3 million, they would probably lose money over the course of time. Right. Um, even if they did have that three, $3 million subsidy. Um, so, okay, so, so maybe that's not going to work, but what can work? So to yes. your point, uh, mm -hmm. uh, subsidizing convenience stores or convenience stores, uh, healthy food mm -hmm. initiatives. So, uh, Philadelphia has done a wonderful job of, mm -hmm. of uh, increasing access to, to healthy food through convenience stores. Um, Great. Um, so I, I do think that those are the kinds of things that we just keep trying. Good. We just keep trying until we can, until we can hit the mark. Urban gardens is another yep. approach, yep. right? Bonton Farms here in sure. Dallas is a tremendous um, 
uh, example of being able to transform a community through an urban garden. Yep. Uh, and there are uh, not just urban gardens, but then there are community gardens right. uh, where people can come and participate in this process too. What role do you see these playing in this big picture? Yeah, well, one, obviously they, they create access to, to healthy food to families that wouldn't have it. Uh, they also help us get reconnected with agriculture. Good. And so most of us are several generations away from being True. connected with knowing how our own food gets right. here. And uh, we had a little community garden at a school that I taught at for one year. <laughs> and, uh, and the kids grew lettuce. Uh -huh. And then when the lettuce was ready to be harvested, uh, we asked the kids if they wanted a salad with their lunch, and, yes. and they said yes. And then when we gave them the salad from the garden, they said, wait, uh, that that was outside. We, we thought you were bringing us a salad from McDonald's. And we were like, well, where do you think the lettuce comes? You know, and, right. and to be able to use that as an opportunity wow, just for the them. just the connectedness. Yes, that's yes. right, that's right. And so, and to see, you know, how God moves through all things, you know, both us as people, but also the land and how it can replenish itself. So. Those things are, are transformative in so many ways. One, yes. they are nimble, yes. and they are able, I mean, you can set up a community garden almost anywhere, right. and, uh, um, but also uh, helping us reframe and reconnect to, uh, to the land that, that, that gives us life. Terrific, yeah. yeah. Well, we have just a, a short moment left, but I, I wonder if you were able to say to someone who is uh, listening or watching this conversation, um, I'd like to do something. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a member of the congregation. I hear what you're saying. I'm so grateful we have all these organizations out there. Uh, what do you want an ordinary person who's beginning to catch an awareness of this, what can they do? What would yeah. you instruct them to do or call them to? Uh, one, they can, you know, I think proximity is important. And, mm -hmm. and what, what, what's important about that, it's not always moving to a neighborhood. Right but it's being in relationship with somebody mm -hmm. um, who's experiencing hunger and poverty right. and hearing what they have to say and assuming that it's true. Yes. Don't argue with wow. them. Wow, okay, there but it is. But, but to be in relationship with them and right. assume what they're saying is true, just to listen to them, that allows you to soften and to begin to see them as somebody that has created in the image of God. So that's the first thing. There are wonderful ways to get engaged, to volunteer. I, Meals on Wheels is probably one of the best programs to be able to do that because you're able to mm -hmm. have a human connection with somebody mm -hmm. while also providing them food. But we have a great coalition here called the Dallas Coalition for Hunger Solutions that are doing amazing things in every, whether it's uh, mm -hmm. community gardening to right. access to SNAP or the food stamp program mm -hmm. to uh, uh, intervening uh, with child nutrition programs in right. schools. So uh, there are all kinds of great ways. But I think most importantly, get to know somebody who, who I uh, grew up in different circumstances as you did and, and just listen to their story. Terrific. Jeremy, thank you for all you do, for yeah. answering the call yeah. uh, to do this kind of work. I know it, it's, it's, it's partly coming out of your faith and mm -hmm. partly it's, it's coming because of the people you, you've encountered mm -hmm. over time. But uh, the imagination to be able to see the day when maybe 200 years from now, uh, as a result of the work yeah. you do, people will say, wow, people, People were hungry once. Right. What a beautiful thought. Right, right. Let's live into it together. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much Jeremy. Yes. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God. 
Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.